like Bill and Ted? How do you I, feel about Bill and Ted to start with? I like Bill and Ted a lot. Uh, you know, the, the, they're not like masterpieces of film or anything, but the characters are very entertaining. The concept is fun. Uh, I, you know, I, I have a fun time with it overall. And, uh, you know, Keanu and Alex Winter are the bestest of buddies. I mean, not masterpieces, but not heinous either. Uh, I, I love all their lingo, their, their throw-ins of station and, you know, like all these wordplay they do that are uh, extremely 90s. And I feel like we just need a chilled out, relaxed laugh right now. So uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music is as close as we get to something chilled out and uh, not at all of our era that kind of brings us back to simpler times. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't go much further than what you expect. Um, I, I mean, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves are doing the same thing, but they look older. So that that achieves a different effect for me. Uh, it's like old dudes saying the same thing. And, and they have their daughters. Uh, Samara Weaving, and I forget who plays Keanu is, but uh, whoever she was, she makes a lot of Keanu faces and, and throws out <laughs> all his slogans, which which both bothers me and is good. Uh, I think my wife had like an adverse reaction to like her like weird Keanu faces and uh, just morphing herself into old him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for me, like appearances of like a hologram of George Carlin really got me though. Um, that that moment just kind of struck me. I was like, oh shit, <laughs> things used to be a little different. Mm-hmm. That's that's nice that they find a way to homage and put him into the movie still because it's it's hard even though he's such a small part of the the mm-hmm. other two films like really a minuscule part when you think about it he's yeah, a, he is. he's an important character to the the Bill and Ted pantheon so uh, to to find a way to put him in again is is nice it, not in the weird way that we usually kind of encounter like in the Star Warsy way where we insert Grand Moff Tarkin into a, an entire film. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little funnier too because Keanu's just gone to like the retro future space and uh, he's just walking by trying to figure out how to get home and what what he has to do and a George Carlin pops up he just kind of walks past it it's like used for a little laugh but then but then suddenly you're crying and you don't know why oh yeah we're um, excited to hear that it that it's good that it has your seal of approval on it because uh, these you know uh sequels like 20 30 years later usually don't work out so well um it's it's not dumb and dumber so. <laughs> uh, i forgot that was a thing that's a who, who asked for that anyway <laughs> <laughs> i think uh them paying their taxes they, I, they have I, to write it off i understand the clamor for an additional bill and ted movie because it does feel like a series that could use a third entry something to kind of cap it off uh kind of in the you know it was kind of in the same vein around the same time period as the back to the future films but that one did yeah. have its consistent and you know satisfying payoff with a third movie um i i mean i feel like it's like a six out of ten but i still enjoy it it's kind of the same as the others that they're, they're not um they're not very highfalutin movies. You're not going to get a lot of depth out of them, but you're going to have a good time, and you kind of just want to hang out with these guys once again. Yeah, and it's nice to hear. Uh, I'll definitely have to check it out. I think. Uh, what's What's the rental cost for it right now? I think it's like nineteen to rent and twenty four to own. I believe mm. a lot. That's that's like that tricky thing of how they get you because you know yeah. you, you would never think to to pay twenty four dollars to own it digitally. But if you're already going to be renting it, you're like, oh, well, five more dollars ain't that bad. That's how they're, that's how they're getting you with this digital theater market now. I know. It, it's hard to say. Do I not want to pay $3 to own the movie? Like three did, extra bucks either. Did you buy this one? I know you bought like I, Trolls and Scoob. <laughs> <laughs> that may have happened, but not for this one. So. <laughs> 
a man of taste, I see. <laughs> yeah. I I I realized with those that Ezra's go watch them in the next two weeks. And with this, I realized that like we just watched Scoob again this last week. That that's paid for itself. With this, I'd probably watch it when it comes on demand or when it comes to Netflix, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'll get to, I'll get back to this for sure, but uh, not anytime soon. Um, the whole movie builds up to a song, and they're going around collecting like like uh, uh, Beethoven and Jimi Hendrix and all these like uh, performers from the past who are just experts at their at their musical interpretation. Then they like combine them at the end, and and the song sounds miserable. Like the whole oh, thing no. leads up to like a a really flat ending it's it's awful like i feel like the bottom fell out for me at the end and i was ready to give it like just a shining endorsement but it's fun getting there so. it's a shame that it kind of doesn't stick the landing because that's always the most important part of any movie but particularly one that has a very clear goal in mind especially uh, when it's the end of everything you you want something else to happen if well, this horrible song plays it just clips that's it well from my understanding with the bill and ted series is that from the first film the whole conceit is that the one day they're going to write a song that's so great it's going to birth a utopian society <laughs> in the future uh, which is which is ridiculous in and of itself, but like that's the kind of thing you should leave alone because there's there's no way that you can actually yeah. write that that song, e- even though it makes a logical like narrative conclusion point for the series. Like you you shouldn't try and tackle that beast because you're you're just gonna fall on your face no matter what you do. They get some good jokes out of it, like they're traveling through the past trying to find the version of them or the future, trying to find the version of them that successfully wrote the song, right? And they keep running into like alcoholic versions and really run down <laughs> versions of Bill and Ted. Um, then suddenly they find Bill and Ted in a mansion and they like go explore it. They're like, man, we really made it this time. And they talk to the guys. They give them like the music clip. This is the best song in the world. The best we've ever heard. Um, they go to leave the mansion. They they open the front door and there's Dave Grohl. Ends up being his mansion. And it was a Foo Fighters song. Oh, so. shit. Well, now I have to watch the movie. I know it's good. There, there's so many good parts like this that I, I feel like I'm glowing about, and then, then the ending just really stiff. Mm. Well, you know what you could do next time: just uh, you know, mute the movie when it comes to that final song, and throw on like uh, Everlong or something. Because yeah, I, I think I, Everlong is a good example of a song that could create a utopian society. It would have been better if it were like a, a Dave Grohl just did the song and they, they stole that and they used that <laughs> and it was an actual Foo Fighters song. I would have appreciated that. But but like they get Kid Cudi and Jimi Hendrix and it just sounds like a noise of messy music. I mean, I don't think noise music is going to save the world or, or people would actually listen to all the cool stuff being done underground. Well, I don't know, Calvin. Uh, you're not from the future, so maybe noise music is the way that things are going to go. Um, I... I'm on the second week of Fantasia, speaking of noise music, uh, Texas Trips, a cool documentary about people just screaming into microphones and doing performative um, uh, performative music that just sounds like noise. Most of them say they don't even understand what they're doing. So I really enjoyed it. I don't think anyone else will. Uh, I think that's I think that's kind of what I'm looking for, though, out of festivals is something that's like squarely of my interest. Nobody else gets it. Isn't it just generally what you're looking for, like all the time, things that exclusively appeal to you that you can kind yeah. of, you know, tout around? It's it's it describes itself as lynchy, and I don't think it quite gets there, but I think it's a nice movie. Um, there's plenty else. What did we talk about last week? We talked about like feels good, man, and everything, right? 
Uh, did we? I think we did. I think it's hard, so. It's hard to know. You're the one who edits these things, so you should know. <laughs> there was a new movie about uh, from uh, Obayashi who did, uh, how do you say it, Haosu or House? Uh, uh, I think we generally pronounce it as Haosu because there's another okay. horror film from the 80s in America called House. And so just yeah. to kind of differentiate the two, we, we refer to it as Haosu. Haosu MD. Um Obayashi, really good, of course, and this was his final film. Uh, he had made one just before this, which was like a war commentary in his war trilogy. Uh, so this follows that up with like a rumination of his entire career and like his childhood when the atomic bomb dropped and his dad going to fight in World War II. Like there's all this influence that finally comes together. But it starts with him in like a fish tank spaceship. <laughs> He's like just pontificating about like what movies mean and what war cinema means to Japan. So then we go into like a town that's rain covered and everyone's driven into the cinema. It's the final day of cinema and the cinema's closing today. Um, and they show all the war films that were historically significant for Japan. A beautiful, moving message. One of the best movies of the year. Uh, buried in this festival because it's three hours. And, and this festival is an online festival, which um, people could only pause movies for three or four minutes at a time. Oh. So if you if you pause this movie while watching the, over three hours, you're going to lose the movie. Uh, so not a great space for it, but but I got a screener and it was fantastic. That's a weird restriction they impose on uh, films like yeah. this. Like... I appreciate at least this one allows you to pause, like, I guess, because some won't, like, I don't know, I imagine if a David Lynch screener went out there, he would have it so that your computer got in virus and exploded if you paused it at any point. Absolutely. Um, I, it's a lot for three hours because there's four different or three or four different films within a film, which the audience gets sucked into the movie and they play out their beliefs about Japan and a history of wars. And it's really deep and uh, it sounds... I think it could use more watches. I can't help but be reminded of uh, Kiro Kurosawa's dreams, which he made yeah. towards the end of his life and was a very like self-reflexive work that was vignette based uh, and, you know, like very reflective. Like he, he himself is a character within the film. Right. It's very that beautiful and stunning. I don't know. That's, that's just what I think of when you, the way you describe uh, Labyrinth of Cinema, I think it was called. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Obayashi, of course, had uh, cancer. And so he was, you know, there was a prognosis that he's going to die before the end of his last film. So just to get this extra one that uh, ends up working as a summation of just his war trilogy and his entire works, that's that's fantastic. Like he outlived it and, and he knew he could do one more. So really inspiring stuff. It's always uh, great, you know, when, when a director reaches that self-reflexory period, as long as it's not like self-indulgent, you know, those can be really bad, but this one sounds like a really uh, nice note to go off on for a really great uh, career. And hopefully uh, when it is more available, more people check it out as well. Yeah, uh, I'm hoping it gets picked up and gets released over here. We'll see. It's very abstract and um, the review is incredibly hard to write, but please read that when that comes out. So, uh, I think I'm fine leaving the festival here and we could do some of the shorts next week and close it out. That sounds good. So we have David Punch, resident uh, new movie expert at the Twin Geeks, now reviewing all the new films. Uh, and you have a hot new documentary, which I really want to check out. Yeah, I think this one's really cool. It's interesting. Uh, I'm demanding you give me uh, assignments now because I'm bad at picking things out, which is why I've avoided doing it for so long. And so far, you're throwing documentaries at me, which is cool because uh, I like documentaries. I just don't 
go out of my way to seek them out as much. So I think you're trying to uh, indoctrinate me into the world of documentaries, which is fine. Absolutely <laughs> true, by the way. Yeah. So this is uh, what I saw this week uh, was a Chilean film called The Mole Agent. And uh, it was very fun and whimsical and interesting. It's about an uh, octogenarian old man. That means he's in his 80s, for people who don't know highfalutin words. Um, and he is hired by a detective agency uh, to infiltrate a, a nursing home and to spy on the activities that are going on there to see if uh, the clients uh, that they've been hired by her um, mother is being treated properly and fairly and it's it's very fun and uh it's got a good humor to it uh it opens up and what's interesting is that it's very narratively kind of inclined uh there's no talking heads there's no like title cards or anything that interests oh, anything no voiceover like and i got that sense even just watching the trailer the first time like it wasn't till like halfway through the trailer i'm like oh this is a documentary film this yeah. isn't a narrative movie because it very well could be a narrative like just a fictional feature uh, and, and it's presented like that because it just goes right out the gate and like it doesn't give you any information. Uh, you you have to pick up on the character names all on your own. It's not hard. It just takes a little longer than I think you'd usually expect. And, uh, you know, it all gets going after that. Um, it's very fun, but it's also, you know, as it goes on and the mystery kind of begins to untangle, the, the, the more dark truth hidden it there uh, hits on some more emotional beats which uh, I, I think resonate quite uh, strongly, even if it's something you're already aware of. Uh, I, I think I was most fascinated by the stuff like the guy getting the phone, and I think it's such a quirky <laughs> experiment for him to have to figure out the phone and then go spy. Yeah, it's I, it's a lot of that's just, in the beginning stuff where like because it opens with like the interview process, and it's a it's like a five guys that they're interviewing, and they ask them you know like to do this thing, and and there's a series of kind of comical. Uh, bits where they're all like trying to do things like he asked one of the guys to try and record him and the guy's like I don't know what I'm doing I can't record anything he's and, and so the detective takes the phone back he's like you took like 50 pictures all of the same thing <laughs> it's very it's very fun very uh whimsical and you know it kind of uh it's an interesting uh because it plays out like a <laughs> Almost like a Clouseau detective movie in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> it even has that kind of Pink Panthery score at points and whatnot. And it is very that kind of like fumbling agent and finding out things. And, it, and I love a documentary that feels like it's a thrill to make too. Like this sounds so fun uh, just to put together and uh, what it explores is actually pretty deep, I think. Yeah, I, I think it gets to some uh, significant truths. To, to me, there weren't, uh, it wasn't anything revelatory. Like I was kind yeah. of already aware of the the mystery that got untangled like like it didn't feel like a shock necessarily but i don't think it had to like it does what a documentary does and it lands uh like, like it uncovers something truthful you know through its uh you know filming and, and the footage there and discovery and even if it's something we've already known you know the, the process is really what's the important part and i think this was very it's highly successful for it uh it's one of the more entertaining documentaries i've seen in a while and I definitely recommend checking it out. It's very funny that's, and also very heartfelt. That's the mole agent. The mole and agent is what it's called. It's a Chilean documentary. Was it that is. right? Yep. Oh, sweet. That, From, that uh, sounds fantastic. And all the reviews I've seen are good. I've seen a lot of acclaim for it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I can't see anything that's like, you know, particularly 
not great about it, you know. Sure. Uh, <laughs> at worst, it does just what it expects, you know, just what you expect it to, which is great. You know, it's a very entertaining and, and a breezy film as well. You know, give me more films that are under like 90 minutes or so. Absolutely. And especially like a spy documentary. It's just so fun. I, I've got to catch up with that for my Def- list later. Definitely. Yeah. I think this could land on your end of the year documentary list that you're always working on. Which has about 30 or 40 by now. <laughs> <laughs> Dead year, by the way, but perfect for documentaries and genre films. So if anyone cares about those, it's their year and nobody else is actually. Yeah. Basically, I mean, we got lots of those uh, kind of coming out this year. So it's the year of the documentary. Speaking of which, you've seen, um, not documentary, but genre film. Have you seen uh, uh, Train to Busan? Uh, no. <laughs> you haven't? Uh, okay. Uh, I'm a little slow on some of those. I know a while back, uh, I think we're, when we were talking about Parasite, I'm like, I'm going to watch a whole bunch of South Korean films, and I probably watched <laughs> like two. Um, Train to Busan, um, kind of famous for like one ending scene, I believe. Like, uh, it's about character development and depth in the zombie film. Uh, Yeon Sang-Hu, uh, the director, he took kind of that same formula and he made it Fast and Furious. <laughs> he made it Fury Road. He made it Fast and Furious. I mean, insert any name of a big franchise and and he kind of put that in there. There's so much Mad Max. There's a literal Thunderdome in the movie. That makes sense. That's probably why I avoided it. Uh, part of the reason anyway for a while is that it did seem very, uh, you know, kind of mainstreamy action yeah. film. And and it had a lot of that like kind of uh, um, zeitgeisty acclaim to it where it was just like every, when it came out, everyone was really emphatic about it. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and it was kind of in the midst of, you know, the n- new uh, South Korean film awareness that was kind of uh, popping up. You know, yeah, a there's less a than different a decade, wave you know? there, right? Like, yeah. like a steel station too, like the introductory. I feel like it's almost like a just a flash in a pan that that train to Vasan even worked, and it is because of like an emotional layering that his prequel didn't get to, and Peninsula definitely doesn't even try for. It's such bad CG all over the place, but it's still fun. <laughs> it's, it's, good. it's still a mediocre zombie film. I mean, it's a it's a perfect five out of ten film. I, you could do far worse, but your expectations are high. I, I think there's more than enough of a place in, in cinema for mediocre but entertaining movies, like where yeah. the, the effort is barely there, but there's a <laughs> distinct charm to it anyway, and the fact that it's aiming to, to entertain can be great. You know, there's lots of old, like, Hollywood films where it's like they're just cranking out bullshit, but, you know, they're doing it in an entertaining manner <laughs> enough. So I'm like, well, this is terrible, but also fun and endearing and <laughs> considering it as like the editor of parasite on board it's it's a little surprising to see people so many shots of people reacting to zombies there must be 30 or 40 where people look anguished based on the zombie outbreak maybe and, maybe you had to edit around it and he's just like i gotta use all these reaction shots to cover up the nothing that i have <laughs> my theory is just parasite is so well directed that it already has such a form to it by the time he got there after reading that script i feel like the form was all there so well, I'm, I'm sure when you have a director like Bong Juno, he's probably yeah. like ed- editing with the camera uh, as it is. Like he's got this all plotted out. The storyboards all kind of dictate the direction and everything. So, you know, there's a there's a roadmap laid out. Uh, but when you get into another project that's maybe a little less planned out, then it can be much choppier and, and require a lot more uh, ingenuity or, you know, kind of like slapdashery from the editor. 
And I have a theory too that it came, the first one came like two years after Snowpiercer. So Zombies on a Train from Korea was such an appealing idea. It worked because that was the current wave of Korean productions coming. It was also just a big zombie craze at the time. Yeah. It's like the midst of Walking Dead height, you know. That's true. So. Yeah. And like The Last of Us was coming out around that year and there, there was a lot going on. Yeah. So z- zombies were super in then. Z- zombies aren't really so in now anymore. It's been a little yeah. while since. They faded. Yeah. yeah. For for we'll the betterment, zombie. I think I'm I'm fine having less zombie films for a while. We did a lot of them. Let's uh let's give it a break and wait for someone to come back with a with a new idea. I'm trying to remember the last good zombie picture, and I, none come to mind right now of the last three years. No, no, I I mean, no, but I also haven't watched movies of the last three years, so you know, I'm I'm not a great resource. There's probably one that we're both forgetting, but um. Yeah, uh, Train to Vassan, much better movie. Watch that if you haven't, and don't watch Peninsula unless you want exactly that thing, and you're going to get exactly that thing, which is <laughs> Mad Max plus zombies, 5 out of 10. Yeah, I mean, th- when you describe it as Mad Max plus zombies, I don't think you're you're giving people <laughs> the ticket that they're they're actually going to be signing up for. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it probably owes money to George Miller, let's be honest. <laughs> some of these shots are straight out of Fury Road or straight out of Thunderdome. There's very literal translations, but it has enough new just with the zombies and Koreanness. Although it goes far more American. A lot of people speak in English and it goes for an international feeling and it looks at like what's big at the box office here. It doesn't matter. It's, it's not as good as the original. Oh, I, th- I think that kind of like international reach is just a... a- blockbuster shift in general you know we've seen the same thing with like you know copping out to china and a lot of american yeah. films and such and uh stuff like your your beloved uh the meg is like brilliant <laughs> piece of chinese pandering it is so. it is for sure and and good dad pandering if it's dads <laughs> in china i guess that's a that's a good question because last year we found ford versus ferrari was your dad film of the year has there, has there been any new dad films that you want to highlight I mean, we had Bill and Ted earlier, which is like the ideal dad comedy. Um, I think that's all I have for this week. But I feel like all my dad films got pushed to 2021. Uh, 2021 year, the dads were making a comeback. Hopefully so. I uh, want to safe to go outside again. Uh, I'm I'm kind of curious as to what the rest of the year is lined up to be. And uh, particularly <laughs> when Oscar season comes around, are we like, are, are we going to keep doing this? Like, are, are we really going to hand off the best picture to, you know, bad boys for life i hope not we'll still have a list of 10 there's there's at least 10 good movies this year i'm sure yeah it'll probably be mostly the documentaries that you've been watching at fantasia (laughs) fest if we're being honest there's 10 documentaries we'll just combine the list this year (laughs) it's the same list (laughs) uh last film we could just do it quickly unfit the psychology of donald trump i was embargoed from three weeks to not tell anyone if donald trump was fit for president I've come here with big news. Uh, well, well, what do you think it is? Uh, uh, you know, I'm a little on the fence on it. You know, on the one hand, uh, he's a terrible human being, uh, m- malignant racist, uh, and totally incompetent at everything he does. And on the other sure. hand, yeah, uh, I'm guessing no, then no is going to be my uh, verdict here. I don't think um, he is, uh, with my very unbiased opinion surprisingly gathering all the doctors they could find they they came out neutral on the idea of whether trump is no no i'm kidding he's completely unfit to be president (laughs) of course that's this is something that's been said so many times in so many ways that i mean you're not going to sit trump down for a psych evaluation so um 
I feel like Mary Trump's book is a little more fair about that because she admits right off. She's like, we'll never know unless we could sit him down and get an actual psychological evaluation. And he's not going to sit for it because he knows he's uh, malignantly a narcissist and a uh, bad leader. <laughs> it, it touches all that. And I'm, I'm just tired of it. I don't really want my movies to be about Trump. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, you know, I certainly don't. I went on a whole rampage about it when I talked about that two second clip of him in burning, you know, yeah. so, uh, you know, I'm totally down with ignoring the fact that he's part of our society at this moment. But I, I have recently taken solace in the fact that uh, he is not the first or last president to be this malignantly obsessed with himself and entirely a major danger to our country. Yeah. Uh, I, I have fallen down a rabbit hole of uh, researching American history for entertaining well, purposes. QAnon's a big website. You could get through a lot. Oh, I just mean in general, like going, going back over and looking over like past presidencies and such. Uh, I just I, I went on a uh, a hunt after being interested. Like my my interest in American history was suddenly sparked by Hamilton, which is very ironic uh, considering how like apprehensive I was towards it. But anyway, there there are lots of leaders who have been equally as incompetent or racist yeah. or destructive uh, to Donald Trump. Some some who have been worse, uh, including uh, probably the the I think the most applicable comparison is to like. Andrew Johnson, who uh, was Lincoln's successor and yeah. uh, totally incompetent, he showed up to his uh, inauguration speech rambling and drunk as hell. Uh, so, again, there, there's a precursor for uh, incompetence and lack of professional, you know, candor. There's there's a great Twitter thread where a guy runs through like every single president, looks at everything they did that's bad. Um, that's that's worth the read if anyone could find it. I mean, there's. There's a great lineage of terrible and racist presidents. So uh, Donald Trump just follows that. Uh, many have been unfit, so he's not the first or the last. Yeah, so I, I take solace at least in that there's a precedence for yeah. this this horribleness and that we can potentially survive it, you know, uh, as long as... survive Corona. We'll get yeah, it. yeah, that's that's the other thing to, to kind of deal with here. But, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to look back in history and see what, you know, historians, how they'll evaluate this all when all of the information comes out. I mean, we know living through the moment that, uh, you know, we're, you know, this is horrible, you know, and uh, total misuse of power at every point and so much corruption and such, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see it all kind of packaged together in a neat little uh, chapter in a history book if it properly goes over that. Maybe I'll be better off with documentaries after they happen, but a documentary asking whether or not he's fit to be president at the end of his first term, it's a lot of these too little, too late. Um, a lot of these should have come before maybe or come after, but um, I don't want to watch it during, but I definitely think there's going to be a more definitive document afterwards. So yeah. I don't know where to put it. It's fine. It's a fine documentary. It's, I guess it's, it. that's an interesting question as well. Like, cause I think it does have some value in that it might be able to reach out and affect people in the moment. But I think <laughs> as a, as a document down the line, it may not be like any kind of definitive version or, or valuable after that. Maybe when they are assembling the definitive Donald Trump documentary, uh, you know, it'll be valuable in terms of research purposes to see, you know, how people felt, uh, people, people felt at the time and such. But, you know, it's, it's only going to be, I think, a resource in the end, not any kind of, uh, you know, kind of conclusive statement. But the, the book market's never been stronger. I mean, Trump books are the, like I looked, worked at a bookstore for years and mm -hmm. Trump books are the only thing that sells anymore. So 
I mean, there's a whole anti-Trump market that's insanely valuable. So I see why you pick it up and release it. And I'm we're sure all against a, Trump. We agree already. I'm sure there's a very avid pro-Trump market as well. Out there, there is. You know, yeah. there there's certainly a slew of uh, pro-Trump documentaries that are floating around. I don't know, around 2016, I remember like four or five like anti-Hillary documentaries <laughs> that, you know, uh, came to theaters as well, which was disheartening. <laughs> Trump has certainly sold more books than a president. And I mean, he's marketable. Uh, he does that. And I, I won't give him any more credit. May, may, maybe he sold more books. I don't know. Lots of people love to read about Abraham Lincoln. I'm sure there are millions of books about him. Maybe even during his time. I don't know. It's just like every book that comes out, best-selling book ever. I'm like, God damn, really? <laughs> that's, well, that's everything. You know, they're going to yeah. advertise it. And, you know, part of how they do that is that they find, like, a very specific way of marketing, it, like, like, kind of qualifying that. Like, it's the best-selling book in the last five years within this very specific demographic. But then they could just of slap – Yeah, and slap a big letters, bam, of all time on there and uh, sell it as such. I think you'd be surprised at actual numbers of these <laughs> – they're insane. Uh, I mean, there's a market. Keep putting these movies out, I guess. But but let's let's elect someone else and stop doing them too. Yeah, where's my Joe Biden documentary? Let's let's get to work on that now. <laughs> okay, we can start working on it now. <laughs> um, there's there's a lot of politics going around, like in everything right now. I think we've seen we can't divorce politics from any subject. Like, a, I think we try to keep it somewhat out of the podcast for a while, but. Now it's in our sports and our news and politics are really in everything anyway. I mean, I don't mind mentioning politics every now and then because it's important and uh, relevant. And, uh, you know, we can't disguise our views from people. You know, they're, they inform part of who we are. But ultimately, we're, we're a movie podcast. And we're movie people. You know, to, to sit here and pontificate on, you know, political discourse, uh, we can only go so far. And, uh, it's, and it's better, I think, to... Uh, I won't say stay in our lane because, you know, like you said, politics will intersect when relevant, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I like to stick to what we know. This is this is more for an escapism for us, I think, ultimately. Me and you uh, depress ourselves every day reading news. So, so I mean, more depressing news this week. We lost uh, uh, Chadwick Boseman. Uh, a little bit difficult to talk about because it's not celebratory at all. It just feels like a down note on the podcast, but... Uh, uh, he he left an incredible legacy behind. So we're kind of looking at what's going on with sports and politics right now. And 42, the story of Jackie Robinson seems like a good fit. Yeah, uh, well, not the least because he passed away on the MLB celebration of Jackie Robinson Day. And he played Jackie Robinson in 42 here, which is just the worst kind of tragic irony. Uh, and it was just such an unexpected shock, I think, to everyone yeah. uh, on Twitter all day. You know, there were just so many, you know, memoriams being kind of thrown out from everyone. It was entirely dominating my timeline. It was the most liked tweet of all time, the one from his estate uh, announcing his death. So uh, it touched everyone. Everyone on Twitter is talking about this. Yeah, uh, it, again, because it was just so shocking out of nowhere. You know, we learned that he had been fighting uh, colon cancer. I believe it was uh through since 2013 which is insane because that means that every one of these like major films that he's become an icon for he was dying through and just you know and, and they were intensive films you know he was yeah. a superhero action star and 
fighting colon cancer at the same time. And he didn't let anyone know the, the whole world was oblivious to this. And uh, it's, it's very shocking now to, to learn. And he was 43 when he died, which is uh, depressingly young. You know, and, and just such I thought a, he was 42 also. Yeah, well, there was a bit of confusion, I think, off the bat. I, you know, it looks like now all of the Wikipedia and IMDb pages have been fixed to change it proper. But I think as soon as somebody said, man, can you imagine if he was 42 as well? That'd be even more ironic than, you know. I even, I even looked it up on the Google and Google told me 42. I, that's I what happened too. I'm, I'm sure that someone changed it. Someone changed it okay. right around the time. But now it's changed back, it looks like, and it's confirmed for 43. But it was, there was a little bit of confusion because, I don't know, I guess someone wanted to make it more tragic, ironic, which is kind of gross in and of itself to just, you know, go and alter things and make it more kind of yeah. chaotic. Yeah, of course. But I can't blame anyone for just getting that collective info from Google. And there was like a 42 for one of the first retired numbers in baseball. Uh, nobody could wear it except on Jackie Robinson Day. It's the only day of the year where everyone wears the same numbers. So uh, it's, it's a beautiful, significant number for the sport and uh, for political history too. Like the first black player to break the color barrier. And then I look at Chadwick Boseman and uh, he really broke the barrier down for like superhero films and inspiring black youth. And he played all these like black dignitaries and historical figures. And then he started building a legacy toward like larger movies that, that could really do something for a culture. Like every one of them has some cultural merit to it, I'd say. And they come from black directors and he really goes down a path once he finds out he has cancer. You could read it in his work. Uh, I think for those, yeah, for those who don't know about Jackie Robinson's legacy, first of all, what the hell are you doing? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> he's he's a major iconic civil rights leader uh, and, you know, important figure in the sports world and in our country overall. Uh, but I think it's also important to clarify that this, this legacy of being the first to integrate into baseball is uh, kind of true and kind of not true, uh, you know, because we did have black players in professional baseball like just in the immediate aftermath of the civil war. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people also don't realize that baseball is that old. Right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and then of course, uh, and, and I think it's easier to kind of whitewash that part of history because people uh, often aren't aware of this slide back of progression that we had in the early 1900s and 19 teens. And that you know, uh, black Americans had uh, considerably more um, rights in the immediate aftermath of, you know, the abolishment of slavery than they did soon, like a couple of decades after when they started rolling that stuff back and putting in black codes and Jim Crow laws and such. So that's when segregation kind of came in again. And so we had to re-break that barrier and Jackie Robinson was one of the key and certainly the most advertised uh, and prolific people to do that. Uh, and of course there, there was other people going on in uh, other sports and stuff. He played in uh, football in UCLA as well with uh, a couple other major people. I read a little bit about Jackie Robinson when I finished Woody Strode's biography just recently, and they kind of crossed paths a few times, and that was interesting to hear about. But he he truly was like the icon of that movement in the late 1940s. I think like coming out of the military, World War II, you're looking at like a guy who's uh, been through service, and it can somehow like. Uh, put America into baseball like Americans can believe in him he was tough enough to like go against whatever was would be thrown at him and it would be a lot so yeah. uh, he was a tough guy and the, he was the figurehead they needed to to kind of figure out how to get the path in 
I think what bothers me most about the movie is is there's like ideas like a uh, why do you want to go play for that? I just want a, a increase in paycheck. You know, like like they kind of write things off. Like it, I'm like, uh, was this was this black written? I don't even know. Uh, well, I think part of the the problem comes from that kind of biopicy structure as well. Yeah. Uh, like one thing I kind of I noticed it got off on the wrong foot out the gate because the opening like one of the opening scenes there with Harrison Ford's uh, com- commissioner character is he he basically just has this revelatory moment where he's like. I'm going to integrate baseball. <laughs> he does. <laughs> and and it's very like white savior-y in, a, in an uncomfortable kind of way. I'm like, oh, uh, we haven't even met Jackie yet, really. Is this then, how we're going to start it off? <laughs> by the end, he's like, now I've saved baseball. He's like, yeah. now, now I believe in baseball again. And, and and there's like a winking kind of thing where he's like, when when like Jackie asks him why he did this, he's like, oh, I'm doing it for the money, you know, but he's kind of like <laughs> yeah, winking. Yeah. Like, it's like this, it's like they're trying to humble him. He's like, oh, he's not really just this huge, city. like he, he, you know, he's trying to save face a little bit here and be, you know, not just this bastion of, you know, racial, uh, you know, uh, you know, incredible uh, integration here, it, but but it is a little very like kind of like white saviory that you have is, yeah. in a lot of these uh, films, which is a shame. But at the same time, uh, I find Harrison Ford's character and performance very entertaining. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't say it's like quite in the same realm of excellence of performances like Chadwick Boseman is here, but he's very yeah. fun. I like I, I liked him here. I like Harrison Ford here because he's bought into it. I mean, he's fully like embraced that that role, like whatever that white savior thing is. He he's really gone for it, and he's he's got the mustache. He's got that uh, delivery that that sounds really good. And, and he's crunchy. he's giving a performance which is more than you can say for most Harrison Ford roles. Yeah. And so that's that's nice to see, and he's he's really like trying to embody the character. Uh, the the writing is kind of the bigger problem in that all of the characters in the film are pretty two dimensional. You've got good white guys, bad white guys, and the good black guys. You know, and and there's no uh, nuance to them particularly. Like I understand it's taking from things most of them that really happen but it's it's also there needs to be a little more depth to characterization and yeah it 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 is very like straightforward in its you know realization of like biopic tropes and stuff like one one thing that was getting on my nerves i know you just eat biopics up like crazy uh it doesn't matter how tropey or by the books they are but but for me they they irk me a little bit like particularly when like we're getting title cards every two minutes like it's the same day and it's like oh now it's 7 p.m now it's 8 p.m and i'm like just just stop and then some characters will be like like like, there was a sign it's like birmingham alabama and then like immediately after it's like here we are in birmingham and i'm like why did you have the title card if you're just gonna say i mean they they should have realized by saying it they didn't have to do it but i i guess they want consistency with all the times they switch from like montreal to florida and everything i guess i don't know it just feels like the movie thinks the audience is stupid yeah and it it does a little like i think it does condescend a little where it's like all right let me tell you all of the things about jackie robinson it definitely feels like a movie for like a high school sub to put on in like a sports history class or something and, and well, yeah just through the basic beats of what robinson did like there's no real depth like it all, did the depth, feel, all the depth uh, really comes from bozeman for me w- watching it it definitely felt like new age remember the titans <laughs> it is yeah but i prefer it to that i guess but oh uh, see I'm, I'm on the opposite there but perhaps part of that's nostalgic from watching remember the titans so much and uh you know and you took that a really great 
it, an even better cast, you know, there as well with like Denzel leading and stuff. And it's uh, endearing. And I think it goes into the racial stuff a little bit more and the effects of a uh, family. But it does have that same kind of like Disney, you know, uh, kind of esque uh, discussion of racial politics, you know. Like the hardest thing it really goes into is you've got Alan Tudyk, uh, you know, shouting the N word repeatedly at Chadwick Boseman, you know. And that all really happens. So that's yeah. In the, it's and Tudyk does a good job. I think like, he does. I think he does a, a great job. A hard uh, role to have to do. I think. Yeah, and, and to be like sincere with that vitriol, you know, yeah, that, it's, that's hard. It, it's hard to kind of get behind and to to say and to to have those words leave your mouth uh in in a sincere kind of manner i thought i thought his wife played by nicole bahari i thought she was really great too although she doesn't she doesn't really get a lot to support him (laughs) she doesn't just waits at home there's a there's a weird scene early on where she's in the bathroom and (laughs) and then this uh totally unrelated other black woman comes up and basically tells her that she's pregnant yeah and then and then the movie like cuts to eight months later and they have a kid that's weird and and then it's never relevant again the fact that he has a kid or or his wife even for that matter like the film is very unconcerned with the family dynamics and like the personal life of jackie outside of baseball well all it does is inserts like one moment where his family gets threatened for for playing baseball but then it like drops the ball on that literally and doesn't really address it uh what it means to be his family i mean i mean she's like women that were supporting like the men that were historical figures are historically significant too they had to put up with a lot of oppression yeah and, like in the stands doing that and there's a lot more of that and so that's something where like i think of remember the titans and i think about the yeah. scenes where they have like the brick thrown through their house and such <laughs> much more impactful and it focuses a lot more on that that's true yeah it's a good movie too i, I might have to readdress it to say which is more Maybe maybe we'll circle back around and we'll talk about Remember the Titans sometime. But uh, no, it, and that's not to say that like it, there's a lot of negativity for 42, but it's mostly in just that how it like misses opportunities or it just kind of adheres to formula. It does excel in in a variety of ways, and for me in particular, uh, I I really loved its depiction of baseball. Like I think all of the the actual sports stuff and and doing and playing the game. Uh, was done exceedingly well on a technical level. Uh, personally, I think baseball is kind of boring to watch at times. There's a lot of uh, waiting around, and it's hard to keep track of things sometimes because the ball is so small and fast it, and thrown around everywhere. It's hard when games last nine hours and they go for 423 games a year. Yeah, and, and so it can be difficult, particularly on on screen to depict baseball really well, but I found that the use of modern technology and and CG to, you know, emphasize the ball more and slow things down and particularly the sound design of the film, which really uh, captures the, the essence of the, the raw feeling of uh, the, the bat hitting the ball or the sliding into the bases. That was all exceedingly well done and really immersed me into the game uh, quite unlike any other baseball film I've seen, I believe. Yeah, I think like digital um, editing and sound mixing has done so much for the baseball movies. And um, I, I think my favorite baseball movie is still Moneyball, which is barely baseball. You know, it's all about like the behind the scenes and it's an actual human story and it has it's, so much to say. It's an Aaron Sorkin movie. So, you know, yeah. 
I mean, it's so well directed, so well acted. I mean, this is great, but I think that's the best baseball movie. You like Field of Dreams? Uh, I probably haven't seen it since I was like a kid, you know. Uh, and I think a lot of, like, largely culture has moved on from Kevin Costner. I think that is, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll see. I know that there was one film, I meant to check this out before I got here. There was a, a Kobayashi film from the 50s that I wanted to see uh, about the uh, corruption in, in baseball in Japan. Oh, cool. I'd like to see that. I'll, I'll check I, that out soon. I like how baseball can actually be multicultural. You oh, need yeah. take a break to blow your nose. <laughs> I, I, I'm sniffling so much, aren't I? All right. Yeah. I hope you don't I'll keep just it edit in, this out. Don't worry. You, you can see me just I'm like, ah, ah. I just don't want you to struggle through it and not be able to talk. I don't know why. I, I think it's just because I slept with the fan on, you know? Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball. And when he swung his bat, the crowd went wild because he knocked that ball a solid mile. Yeah, boy. Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball. There's a Kobayashi film from the 1950s I meant to check out uh, called I Will Buy You which is uh, kind of in the same vein of his uh, anti-establishment uh, you know, uh, oeuvre in, in that it tackles the, you know, the manipulative and uh, you know, consuming structure of uh, you know, baseball in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I meant to check that out before here, but uh, some other stuff got in the way, but I'm looking forward to watching it this week since I found out about it. It's not, it's not a very well-known film from him, but it sounded very interesting. Yeah, I think it's so important to look at things like breaking the uh, color barrier, looking at Japanese baseball, because it's such a multicultural sport. And that's what I think makes it distinctly American is everything that holds, like, especially like here in Seattle, like the Mariners through like the 2000s, we had Ichiro and yeah. everything was like, you know, there's like Japanese iconography all over Safeco. Like, it felt like you walked into a Japanese ballpark. It was an amazing feeling. I mean, well, like and- Nintendo everywhere, video games from <laughs> Japan, everything. Baseball in particular is super popular in Japan. That was, I believe, like post-World War II, that was something they really took from us and, and ran with. And uh, being a Seattleite myself, uh, I was big uh, Ichiro fan when I was growing up. Didn't know much about baseball, but uh, I knew this guy was the tops. You know. I think uh, Ken Griffey was always my favorite. Yep. Uh, he he oh, was just before oh my, my time, really. Like, I caught the tail end of him. I love that he was 24, like the inversion of Jackie Robinson's number, and then he ended up being like the greatest hitter I ever saw. Such a great power hitter. And the way he went into a swing, I've never seen anyone like approach a ball that way with that much courage and, and that much force like in his hand. It, and that was like during the steroid era. He still showed up as a power hitter without the steroids. A so, uh, fucking hero, that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's the other big strong suit of uh, 42 here is, of course, the reason we wanted to talk about it was Chadwick Boseman is fantastic, uh, despite, you know, some of the, the drawbacks of the writing of the character here. He really gives it his all. That scene where he has, he has to endure all of the abuse and he hits like the second fly ball and then, you know, he has, he's so close to punching out Alan Tiddick's character and, yeah. he, and he goes out into the the hall and he just like wails the bat against the wall really emotionally powerful scene this release of 
anger frustration. That, that just shows me he was up for so much more. Like this whole movie could have like held that anger and frustration in every scene and it could have been like an Oscar movie if it got there, but it goes halfway, I think. Yeah, it, I think I think that's a good way of looking at it. It's definitely it has Oscar biopic vibes to it. Uh not quite there, but almost. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I could have seen someone nominating Chadwick Boseman. I don't remember who was nominated in 2013, but it it definitely demonstrates his potential here. And, uh, you know, I know he went on to do other major uh, biopic films of great black uh, icons like James Marshall and Get On Up and then Marshall. Yeah. Um, I I haven't seen a lot of his others. Um, I... I know how significant Black Black Panther was for everyone, but this was like my distinct memory. I think about a lot of the scenes about like Jackie and his teammates eventually coming, joining him on the bus and like what that show of support looked like and meant and how it took 70 years to get a fucking Jackie Robinson biopic. I think, I think that's incredible in itself that it was just bound to happen. And that Chadwick Boseman was the most convincing like ball player I'd seen on screen at the point. Like he just looks like a ball player. If I if I remember right, uh, I have to look at the the trivia for this. But yeah, so this was the second uh, you know uh, black character central icon biopic that the writers were working on. The first one that they did was Ray back in two thousand four, oh, and then they immediately went they immediately went into making forty two. But <laughs> it took nine years to manifest because of how hard it is for that kind of story to get through this the studio system and get approved you know you know so. i just watched ray for another podcast doing project power and i they they're, they have so much in common i think like their strengths and, and yeah. their weaknesses are the same i would i would totally agree it's like incredible central performance kind of uh weak you know uh tackling of racial themes and, and prejudice throughout ray is also just kind of weird in in general like it's got those weird like nightmare aspects with the water and everything with his with his lost brother i forgot how seattle the open was and uh, how it goes to like those seattle jazz clubs so i got pleasure out of that but I, I like this a little bit more than ray too i i maybe it's the chadwick boseman thing throwing me over the edge too it, it I, might be. It also like, could be like the recency bias, yeah. and, and particularly how that resonates now with his uh, unfortunate passing. Yeah, I mean, it just lines up in a way that this is the movie I was thinking of, and I, this seemed like the one to cover. We're not going to do a Black Panther podcast, obviously, but no, um, I mean, and and everyone's talking about Black Panther right now, and rightfully so because of how yes powerful and iconic, and uh, you know. Uh, really impactful uh not only for you know so many people but for particularly for the black community it was at the time uh and i you know i think it's not as much for us to to talk about i think our perspective on it is is not as valuable in this moment but you know i don't like marvel films i think you're kind of over (laughs) them i think it would be insulting for us to go through black panther right now well it, it definitely doesn't resonate the same way for you and me but the impact is still undeniable and the the icon of it and to see uh him, him taken uh you know lost like this in this time that's that's a huge blow to uh you know the the marvel um process and you know the films going forward here i know they were already working on a sequel and to lose the most iconic you know and powerful black figure uh, on screens is uh, such an insane immense tragedy 
you know a lot of a lot of nasty articles coming out like the next two days about who's replacing oh him. yeah i saw that what was that from was that the av club i think i don't want to say in case it's wrong <laughs> okay that's uh, that's my guess don't take that necessarily okay. to heart <laughs> um i i don't want to discredit i'm sure everyone's run articles like what's happening but there were some really nasty ones about like who should just replace the guy without like a you know at least we're like without any doing tact. It in remembrance yeah like no no tact just immediately like you know we what's next yeah Fuck. <laughs> which is which is awful and and really like there there needs to be time and significant yeah. amount of mourning here because it's such an uh, immense and, and tragic loss for I mean, for that community. I just won't even ask. I mean, I think they're going to do something obvious with like Shuri. They're going to replace the character in some way that feels comfortable in the story. But to run that fucking article, disgusting. Yeah, and it's not the time or place to you know have any conjecture on that to to predict or anything. You know, let's just all take the moment and remember uh, how great Chadwick Boseman was and how sincere of a loss this is. Uh, you know, and I think it does reframe something like, you know, uh, his role, his last role in The Five Bloods, where he does play a character who tragically passed in his youth, you know, and was such an icon, a leader uh, for all of his uh, black brethren. Do you think they knew? I think he knew. Uh, you think obviously. he knew? Obviously he knew, but, you know. He uh, had to shape the part whether or not they knew. I mean, that- it does it, it recontextualizes that in a, in a couple of different ways there and you know i've seen a lot recently come out like people going back and saying oh how you know there are all these comments recently on how much weight he lost and how much skinnier he looked and now we kind of know why or like these interviews he gave where he's like you know it was it was such a struggle for me in these parts to maintain the physicality and you know you know yeah. why sometime i think he said something like and it's like oh my god it's really like to bury all of that suffering under this you know image of you know uh unrelenting power that he projected is is so incredible especially that movie he plays like an angel like you say for his brother from Mm -hmm. um, for his bloods from uh, vietnam and uh, he's played so many historical black figures and people that have like this iconography for him to be like a jesus figure in this war movie and then to pass right after uh, I think we only get one more um, performance, a Netflix uh, drama adaptation of a play. I think it's called Ma's Black Bottoms. I hope it's a, a, a good way for him to go out because it, it, in retrospect, it is like that Five Bloods role is kind of uh, a, a great send off uh, in a way. Still very, very tragic. And, you know, I'd, I'd rather he still be around for more roles because it does feel like really he was just getting started he was this was like you know he finally got all that momentum to really shoot for the stars now yeah i it felt like there's a lot left for him i mean black panther just felt like the start of a new yeah. phase honestly like that was a that was like back end of phase three looking into like what the future of marvel was going to be like a whole company was founded on i feel like this was going to be the black panther phase right like phase four yeah well, and and that's the thing i think like if i was still interested in marvel I, I think the only way they could have done that is if they had positioned him better to lead the pack right. because they, they left this hole of leadership and kind of have refused to fill it which is part of they why the, the series has kind of died off because they've done a very poor job of setting up the next phase but like had they set it up with uh t'challa or you know like you know him as a front runner and big role there then that i think had a lot of promise for the series uh yeah, I wonder if someone knew and, and they knew. I don't want to like 
guess at that stuff, but uh, yeah. it seemed like every movie was setting up to be the leader of the next pack. Like it felt like Spider-Man went through those things where he was past leadership in his movie and he was going to be the leader of the Avengers. It seems like Captain Marvel seemed obvious and T'Challa of course seemed the most obvious that that would be the best way to market it. I think uh, just for like the minimal amount of conjecture I can do here is that I think it would be wise of them to go forward and continue with Black Panther because it's it's not just Chadwick Boseman, but yeah. what he gave to the character that made it so iconic. And there's certainly a way to pass off the reins to a new Black Panther and preserve that spirit, um, you know, w- without uh, dishonoring uh, Boseman's part in creating the legacy. Uh, and And I think it would be a tragic loss if, if they chose just to retire him because of his association with uh, Chadwick Boseman. I think uh, Boseman would be very disappointed with that as well. I think he would like to I see the agree. character live on. I think there's so much empowerment. Even as a white guy in my 30s, I walked out of Black Panther with so much hope for my daughter's generation that that she would get stories like this and uh, that that Black children everywhere could have something to look up to. Like I, I mean, I feel empowered that a generation has something so significant that uh, they could look at for their idols. Like, I, I don't know if that really existed in the 80s when I was a kid. Like, I don't really feel like Black children had the greatest. I mean, they were kind of caricatures still. I mean, there was still that minstrel quality to what Black people in entertainment were like. I mean, this is no parody. This is like Pan-African, all the themes. And I think Chadwick Boseman so eloquently expressed like all those Pan-African ideals. And he was such a good figurehead for a movement. Yeah, and it's just, it's an immeasurable loss. Uh, and, you know, we're sad to see him go. And uh, fortunate enough to have these great performances, these great roles, these iconic, uh, you know, films now to to look back on fondly. And There's that 21 Bridges last year, which I thought was going to be one of the biggest movies of the year, but then nobody at all saw it. Uh, it had the directors of the Avengers, it had Chadwick Boseman. I mean... That seemed like it was going to blow up and nothing. Well, maybe then people can uh, look forward to that if that's your is that is that your main Chadwick Boseman recommendation? Then you would say no, I I haven't even seen Twenty One. Oh, Bridges, oh so. okay. Well, maybe maybe you should. Uh, how could it blow up if you're not even going to be the one to go see it? <laughs> I I don't know. I I've heard almost nothing of it, and I, it just seems so weird to me that it would come like at the peak of his power and that he'd be going doing all these action movies and. And just a whimper for that one, but the the rest are so strong. Well, this one I think forty two here is a another good installment. Uh, you know, the film around Chadwick Boseman it doesn't live up to his uh, performance here, but there's so much of it that's good and worthy of recommendation here. And again, just the 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 irony, the the tragedy of uh, him passing on Jackie Robinson Day feels fitting in in a very sad kind of way. Especially at a time where we're looking at politics and sports and evaluating what listening looks like, and an NHL needs to be like goaded into taking even two days off to listen. So yeah, uh, that that as well, like to have that kind of coincide with the uh, protests of the the MLB players striking in uh, solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. It just makes all that hit even kind of harder. Yeah, for the movement never to have been at such a global peak and then to have such a resonant performer of uh, what what symbolizes that movement, I think, in the cinema uh, to pass. Uh, that was really hard for everyone, I think. And 
I think that's why it's blown up and it's, it's hit at a time where he could be most appreciated. So uh, in some way, just grateful for that. Yeah. And I think the morning will continue for a while. Uh, thinking about this in the same context of having Kobe Bryant pass earlier this year in an equally kind of tragic and unexpected way. Uh, you know, I think it's, that's so many blows already, you know, 2020 is shaped up to be one of the, Worst years all around, not just in terms of, you know, global pandemic, you know, rampant civil unrest, uh, but, you know, celebrity deaths, major icons passing, and uh, Bozeman is just the latest and most unexpected. For a while, it felt like I was holding on to Bowie for two years, and then suddenly (laughs) every week someone's dying that I really, you know, that I really admire and respect. It's it's a minefield out there. I do. Yeah. I, I do still mourn Bowie though every day. I, that one. I do still think about Bowie most days. <laughs> I think part. Well, part of him was well because I don't know if you listened to Black Star, which came out like two days before he passed. It came right. out on his birthday, and then and then he he basically just let go after that because he put out his final word to the world. And oh, that one was uh, you know rough. It's still sometimes hard to to listen through because he's so aware i think and again in a similar way to bozeman where he imbues his performance and his art with the knowledge that he is soon to be gone and i think we we really look for that resonance too that's something we want to find meaning in just to comprehend what what a loss means and not to have someone at all anymore we really want to seek that so i'm glad we could give a a highlight for bozeman because he really deserves it great performer yeah, thanks again for uh, getting together at the last minute here, kind of to decide on this one and, and talk about it and watch. It was very satisfying, and I think our discussion around it was uh, helpful to a little healing. So my last verdict, good movie, but just not as great as Bozeman and Jackie Robinson. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, thank God we have that portrayal of him here. I think it means yeah. a lot. No, I think it's I think it's a special movie just for that. So. Well, uh, next week, uh, I think we're looking forward to something a little more upbeat. You know, granted, nobody else dies in the meantime. <laughs> um, we'll still be dazed and confused next week. So. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later, Captain. you